We are nearing the end of 1 Timothy. If you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles, it's page 993. Paul's first letter to Timothy, starting with the second half of the second verse of chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6.2. If you're new to the Bible, big numbers or chapters, little numbers are what we call verses. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for speaking to us these sound, healthy words through and from your son Jesus. As we consider contentment this morning, as we think about wealth and our possessions and our circumstances, Lord, we ask again, as we sang a little while ago, that you would teach us the patience of unanswered prayers. Help us, Lord, to love you and to trust you in all circumstances. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, There was a pastor in London uh, in the 17th century, in the 1640s, named Jeremiah Burroughs. He was what we call a Puritan. He wrote a book, he's most famous for this little book he wrote, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I have a copy of it outside afterwards, along with a couple of other books on contentment to give you all. He says in the beginning of his book that he writes it because he wants to encourage Christians in what he calls these sad and sinking times. Uh, If you know anything about uh, English history, you know that the 1640s were a particularly turbulent time Uh, lots of political intrigue, lots of international uh, danger. Uh, If you think things are bad in America, uh, at least we haven't gotten to the point that they had gotten to where their parliament beheaded their king. Uh, It was sad and a sinking time for lots of people. Jeremiah Burrow points out that the Christian life is not only about doing what pleases God, although it is that. He says it's also about being pleased with what God does. It's not just about doing what pleases God. That's what Paul has been calling godliness in 1 Timothy, not just doing what pleases God. It's also about being pleased with what God does. That's what we call contentment. The second half of the passage this morning is all about contentment with the circumstances and especially the possessions that God is pleased to give us. But Paul starts out, you notice, in the first few verses by warning about the danger of false teachers 
who distort God's word. It's the third time Paul has been warning about these teachers. And you can see here that being pleased with what God does, being content in our circumstances, it flows out of being pleased with what God says. These false teachers in Ephesus are not content with what God is saying. And so they are teaching a form of Christianity that's fixated on who's in and who's out of this circle of elite Christians committed to lots of extra rules. They have special mystical knowledge, special experiences that not everybody else gets to have. And the reason that Paul is so concerned about this version of Christianity is because it's distorting God's word. They're adding to it and taking away from it. And so this is leading to all kinds of spiritual and moral and social disease. You might have noticed all through the passage, Paul keeps using this language of sickness and decay and being unhealthy to describe what happens, what's going on when somebody distorts God's word. And so on that medical theme, I think first you see in verses 2 and 3, Paul's diagnosis. Paul's diagnosis. What is the basic problem that he's seeing in this church in Ephesus? He tells Timothy, first of all, teach and urge these things. He says that because he is deeply concerned about those who, quote, teach a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of Jesus and the teaching that accords, the teaching that goes with godliness. Paul says that Jesus' words are sound. Uh, It's a word that's often translated in the New Testament as healthy. This word shows up all over the place when Jesus is healing people during his ministry. Uh, What Jesus has to say to us, what Jesus has to say about us is good. It's healthy. It's restorative. His words uh, rescue us. They heal us. They They restore us from sin and from sickness and from death. The teaching of Jesus accords with godliness, which you remember Paul said in chapter 4, verse 8, Godliness is valuable in every way because it positively transforms life now and also into eternity. Living toward God, living for God, living before God, that's what Paul means by this word godliness. That's what we were created for. It's the only way that we can find lasting joy and peace and security. Now notice that Paul says, Paul just kind of takes it for granted that these words of teaching and teachings of Jesus, that they can be known and recognized. Uh, Jesus, I mean, Paul cannot only be talking about the four gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament, because at this point, they haven't all been written. Jesus speaks not only in the red letters of the gospel accounts, but also through his appointed spokesman, such as the Apostle Paul, as much as we might struggle with some of the things that he says. Paul is very clear, very self-conscious. I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus. If you reject me, you're rejecting Jesus. Now here's what I mean when I say notice that Paul takes it for granted that these words can be known. Paul says that God's word can be recognized. It's clear. It can be understood. Uh, He says there are different and therefore difficult and destructive teachings and messages out there that claim to be from Jesus, but which have to be rejected. Paul does not shrug like a lot of people do today and say, well, you know, a lot of people have lots of different ideas about who God is and who Jesus is and what they all said. Uh, We don't really know. Uh, We can't really be sure. We don't know what parts still matter today. Paul says, no. He says, God has spoken. He's spoken in Jesus. He's spoken through Jesus. He says, in our health, 
depends on listening to him rather than to somebody else. Paul's not being intolerant. He's not being narrow-minded. This is letting God be God because it's letting God's speech be God's speech rather than shrugging off the things that we don't like or adding in things that we do. The words and the teachings of Jesus, which are now written down for us and passed down to us in the Bible, Paul says these are good and healthy words. That's Paul's diagnosis of this grave spiritual disease. What's his prognosis? Where does this false teaching lead people? How does it affect you? Where is it going when you reject what Jesus has to say? Paul says in verse 4 that the teacher who teaches something other than Jesus' words is puffed up with conceit. The verb here might mean something like deluded with conceit or maybe even mentally ill with conceit. Paul says that such a teacher understands nothing, which is quite the criticism given that these false teachers in Ephesus pride themselves on how much they know, pride themselves on all their expertise. Paul says they don't know anything. Paul says that to reject God's word through Jesus is actually the epitome of arrogance and ignorance. So that when Jesus says in John chapter 14, no man comes to the Father except through me, it is not humble to say, well, who can really know how people get to God? Isn't it all kind of the same thing? It means that when Jesus says in Ephesians chapter 2 through Paul, by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. When Jesus says that, it's not humble to say, well, no, actually, I know that God never could accept me the way I am. Surely, God needs me to clean up my life first. Surely, God needs me to be a better parent or a better student or a better pastor. Then maybe God will accept me. Paul says, no, when you reject the words of Jesus, you're not being humble. You're ignorant. You're actually arrogant. Paul says that in their arrogance, these teachers and the Christians who go along with them are ending up with this unhealthy, diseased fixation on controversy and arguments. I'm sure many of you have seen this before, Christians or people who claim to be Christians who get really wound up about policing other people and what they're doing and what they're saying, Uh, Christians who get really wound up about proving they're smart, uh, fixated on who's ahead, who's behind, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out, who's the victim, who's the oppressor. We kind of put each other into all these different categories. We look down on each other. We get angry at each other. We envy each other. Because you see, apart from the healing medicine of the simple gospel of Jesus, we merely become fixated on power and control just like the world around us. And so that's why Paul says that this kind of teaching leads to envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction between people. And so you can see there that being concerned about false teaching is not just some concern for egg-headed pastors and theologians because false teaching, according to the Bible, is never really just about words and content. It's not just about books and sermons. Because you see, we live by what we think and we relate by what we say. I read last night, Uh, in a biography of St. Augustine, he said, talking about just words in general, he said that words are precious cups of meaning. How much more God's words? 
we should be deeply concerned about what is being said, what we're thinking, what we're hearing, what we're saying. False teaching in the end destroys our lives and our communities as it leads us into jealousy and rivalry and bitterness. Paul says that these people who have been infected with false teaching are depraved, or uh, maybe you could translate that as ruined in their minds. And he says they're deprived or they're robbed of the truth. Being deprived of your stuff, being robbed of your stuff and your money, that's pretty bad. We don't want that to happen. We do what we can to keep it from happening. Uh, but you'll, we'll see in a little bit, a couple of verses later, that even then, when you lose all your stuff, you can still be content in God. But being deprived of the truth is vastly and even infinitely worse. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The answer, of course, is nothing. Paul gets at this in the rest of the passage. At the end of verse 5, he says, Part of what reveals the spiritual sickness of these false teachers is that they wrongly imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Uh, The word here for gain has to do with getting or providing something for yourself. Uh, They view God and Jesus and Christianity as a means to an end. I want something from God, so I'm going to do these things to get it. We're going to see here that it has a lot to do, at least in this context, with money and with wealth. The teachers apparently were looking to get rich off of their ministries, uh, which of course, sadly, is still a very common problem today. And not just among those who crassly promote the prosperity gospel that says, well, you know, if you really want to show your faith and you want God to make you rich and healthy, uh, then you need to give me some money. Give the church some money. Uh, It's a lot more insidious and a lot more common than those who just come out and say it like that. But of course, even beyond wealth and money, there's all kinds of things that we want to use God for. Uh, Like he's a genie in a bottle, give me my wishes, thank you, now I'll put you on the shelf. We expect God to pay us back for religious services rendered. Uh, We want him to pay us back with things like status or security or power or relationships or a better family. Paul says in verse 10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, I'll point out here that Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. That is a very bad translation. Uh, and it's only a partial translation. He says it's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Remember, the word all doesn't always mean all. The whole church came to my house doesn't mean every single person came to my house. Paul clearly does not believe that money is the sole cause of all evil in the world. Money itself is not the problem. At the end of chapter 6, in just a few verses from here, Paul is going to tell Timothy Uh, Oh yeah, hey Timothy, don't forget to remind the rich Christians in your church to be humble and generous and to not put their hope in their wealth. Uh, He even tells them, this is amazing, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, he even tells them, make sure they remember they need to enjoy what God gives them. God is a generous God who gives us the things of this world to enjoy. Paul does not tell Timothy when he wants to remind him what to tell rich people, he does not tell him, make sure you denounce them all as wicked fat cats. Make sure you make them sell everything they have and give it all away because they're so evil and terrible for having all this stuff. Money is not the problem. Being rich is not the problem. Because you see, money is not something that we love for its own sake. We don't love little pieces of green paper. We don't love little digits on our screens. 
We love money because of what it can get us, especially in the future. We want money because it can and it does allow for more security and more experiences and more pleasure and more safety. Even, the Bible is pretty frank, more friends. If you have money, you're going to have more friends. Are those bad things? No. They're good things. But they can easily become ultimate things, what the Bible calls idols. And because money, I mean, money's just a thing like anything else. We trade it, you know, it has interest on it, things like that. It's just another thing. But the thing that makes money so unique is that it's the thing that we use to get other things. It's the thing we trade around to get all the other things we want. And so because of that, money itself has a way of becoming the ultimate thing. It has a way of becoming the thing that we're living for in our hearts. That's why Jesus specifically calls out money when he says you can't live for money and for God. He says pick one or the other. You can't have both. It's why he says in the parable of the sower that lots of people fall away from him because they let his word get choked out by various weeds. And he says he's talking about things like being worried, the things that the world likes to worry about. He says he's talking about things like the deceitfulness of riches. Money has a way of tricking you. He says it's talking about things like having desires for other things. It's why Jesus so often warns about how hard it is to enter heaven if you're wealthy, because our wealth makes it so easy to be self-sufficient, whether we're talking about actual money money or other forms of wealth, such as education, skills, family, friends, all these things. It makes it really easy to depend on yourself, not on God. And so Paul says in verse 9 that those who desire to become rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, a trap for animals, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Literally, he says, they pierce you. They impale themselves with many pangs. Think about all the people you've known who have made themselves and their families miserable because they can't stop working because they never have enough, because they can't stop worrying about their things, they can't stop stressing about their retirement. But the worst thing about falling in love with money, even besides all that stuff, the worst thing about it is that it pulls you farther and farther away from God until in the end, you're just in hell. You don't have to have money to love it. You don't have to be rich to desire to become rich. Uh, my first year in seminary, I worked as a janitor, and I felt really sorry for myself uh, because I had such a lowly job. And up to that point, I had a very romantic view of what poor people were like. I thought they must have just been more naturally righteous and holy and more interested in God. And I was somewhat horrified to realize how many of my coworkers talked constantly about winning the lottery, non-stop talking about getting rich. This is a problem for all of us. It's a danger for all of us, especially in a society that constantly tells us that life is about consumption right now. Life is all about being comfortable right now. Get whatever you can right away. Don't wait for anything in the future. Uh, I've never met anybody who actually said, yeah, I think money can buy you happiness, but I've met lots of people who live that way. I live that way sometimes. False diagnosis, he says, false teaching distorts Jesus' words. That's where everything's coming from. His prognosis, where does it lead? He says it leads to arrogance and ignorance, envy, ambition, greed, 
But now we get to the cure. The cure. Contentment. Learning to be pleased with what God does. In verse 5, says, Paul says that the false teachers and their followers wrongly imagine that godliness is a means to gain. But in verse 6, he kind of twists it around a little bit ironically. He says that godliness with contentment is gain. They think it's a means to gain, and he says, well, it is gain. It's great gain. Not only um, on its own, but he says with contentment. Godliness with contentment is what we're ultimately made for. It's what will ultimately satisfy us. Why? Because the godly person is the person who is oriented toward God in all things. And with God, they are oriented toward His Word. We can be content because we have God's promises to us that He's going to take care of us now and into the future. Paul says in verse 10 that many of those who crave to become rich says they wander away from the faith. That's not just talking about leaving the institution of the church, uh, but really more fundamentally, Paul says what they end up abandoning is a trust in Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. They don't have faith in his word anymore. The discontent person doesn't really trust Jesus because they don't really believe his promises. The faith in, the, in Paul's letters to Timothy, when he says the faith, it's a way of describing not only the teaching of Christianity, although it is that, it's also a way of describing the way of Christianity, believing in Jesus. And Paul says, when you desire to become rich, you get fixated on money. He says, it's really easy to fall away from trusting in Jesus. You don't believe his word anymore. Why is godliness with contentment such great gain? First, in verse 7, Paul makes the obvious but radically important point that you can't take your stuff with you. He says, we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. You will die just as naked and poor and weak as you were born. So we should not live for the things of this world for the simple reason that we can't hang on to them. Godliness with contentment is God's merciful cure for the great wasting disease of greener pastures syndrome. If only I had a better vacation or a bigger house or quieter kids. If only I was married or if only I was not married, then I would be happy. We become more and more content in God to the extent that we realize that the things of this world do not last and cannot satisfy because we are looking forward more and more to the endless joys and pleasures of the world to come. You don't need to hike Everest. You don't need to ride a gondola in Venice. You don't need this car or that job because if you believe in Jesus... You are headed for an eternity of delights in a resurrected new creation. Who cares about all that other stuff? Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, says this in his book. He says, If you would get a contented life, do not grasp too much of the world. Do not take more of the business of the world than God calls you to. Then he goes on talking about living in whatever God's called you to. He says, Though it's the least business... Be sure of your call to it. Then whatever you meet with, you may quiet your heart with this. I know I'm where God would have me. I'm about the work that God has set me. Whatever it is, changing diapers, not being in the corner office, driving cars, whatever it is, 
Know that God's called you to it. God knows what he's doing. For as Paul points out next in verse 8, sometimes God calls us into stations and callings that are very low, very poor, and very sad. It's hard for us to imagine uh, living in in such affluence, uh, but sometimes all you might have is some food and clothing. Some of us have experienced that. Uh, Sometimes you might not even have that. The Apostle Paul himself, like lots of Christians around the world today, like lots of people in the world today, experienced this many times. But even then, Paul says, you can and you should be content. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these will you be content. Now, it's not Stoicism. It's not Buddhism. It's not Oprahism. You don't just grit your teeth. You don't just tell yourself that suffering is an illusion. You just don't tell yourself, this too shall pass. That's not what Paul is talking about. The Bible is filled with people, not least Jesus and Paul themselves, who truly and agonizingly recognize that suffering really is awful. Jesus does not say in the Garden of Gethsemane, suffering is an illusion. He falls down in terror. But even in suffering, Paul says we can and we should be content. We should be pleased with what God does, even in the deepest valley Because he says, God gives you what you need. Not only practically, although he does do that, that's why we thank him, that's why we're supposed to thank him every time we eat food, but also and especially spiritually. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, the first time he said, here's a trustworthy saying, make sure you accept this. Remember what he said? He said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In Jesus, God has given us what we need the most. He's rescued us from our greatest danger. He's healed us of our greatest sickness. He's fixed our greatest problem. We used to be far away from God, suffering the misery that always comes with living for ourselves and for the things of this world. And even worse than that, we used to be God's enemies, disgruntled and spiteful and rebellious toward Him, and so also rightly facing His anger and His judgment. But in Jesus, God has come to us and brought us to himself. He's forgiven all of our guilt. He's washed us clean of all of our shame. He's assuaged all of our fears. Jesus came to save sinners by bringing them to the living God, who is himself not a means to an end, but is the end. He is our greatest hope and our greatest joy. The best thing about the new creation, I've told you before, is that God's there. Jeremiah Burroughs, our Puritan friend, says that if you trust in Jesus, this means that your mercies are greater than your afflictions. And some of us this morning need to remember that. Your mercies are greater than your afflictions. Do you know that? Not only when things are going pretty well, but especially when God brings great suffering into your life. We see in Jesus the surpassing kindness and generosity of God toward people who don't deserve it. People who weren't even looking for it. People like me. People like you. Jeremiah Burroughs says that grasping the extent of God's love for me in Jesus means that when we suffer, when we lack, when we are sad... 
We no longer do what we used to do. We don't begrudgingly ask ourselves, why is my cross so heavy? But he says, you learn to start asking more and more, why is my cross so light? I know what I deserve. This isn't it. Why isn't my life worse? This is wonderful. That's how Paul can say something so apparently insane, something so radically countercultural in such a consumeristic society. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. That's okay. We become content as we more and more trust what Paul calls the sound words of our Lord Jesus. Being pleased with what God does is a function of being pleased with what God says. And at the heart of God's word, the focal point of everything God has to say is His beloved Son, Jesus, dying on the cross in your place so that you can enjoy God's blessing and favor as your merciful and generous Father. He meets all your needs, just like a good dad should. That's what the whole Bible is all about. Finding and enjoying the love of the Father in Jesus is where contentment comes from. It's the cure for our feverish fascination with merciless pseudo-gods like money and work and family and church and success. Are you content not just when things are pretty good, but especially when things are bad? Would the people around you describe you as a content person? I'll close with another quote from our Puritan friend. Wonderful illustration. He says, name any affliction that is upon you. Okay, so everybody got their affliction. He says, name it. Okay, think about the affliction that you're dealing with right now. He says, okay, there is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. If you take a bucket of water and dump it on the floor of your house, it makes a great show. But if you throw it in the sea, there's no sign of it. So, afflictions considered in themselves, we think are very great. But let them be considered with the sea of God's mercies that we enjoy. And then they are not so much. They're nothing in comparison. God has shown you a sea of mercy in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sea of mercy that drowns our afflictions as painful as they are, as unpleasant as they are, as much as we rightly seek to get out from underneath them. Help us to see in your mercy in Jesus that you have given us everything we need and more. Help us to be a joyful and a content people who are not only striving to do what pleases you, but even more deeply who are pleased with what you do. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.